You are listening to ReachMD. The following interview was recorded live at a Prova Education event entitled Acute Coronary Syndrome, Bridging Gaps in Care. Your host is Dr. Sandeep Nathan, Associate Professor of Medicine from the University of Chicago. Hello, I'm your host, Dr. Sandeep Nathan, and I have with me today Dr. Todd Kerwin. Uh, Dr. Kerwin is an assistant professor of clinical medicine at Cornell Medical College, and he's the director of non-invasive cardiology at New York Hospital Queens in Flushing, New York. Welcome, uh, Dr. Kerwin. Sure. Good morning, Sandeep. Today we're discussing the management of acute coronary syndromes. With that, I'd like to uh, talk to you a little bit about how you practice and uh, what your take is on the, uh, on the literature as it stands today. Dr. Kerwin, could you briefly describe the broad role of antiplatelet therapy specifically in secondary prevention of acute coronary syndromes? As you know, the guidelines currently recommend as a class one indication for patients following an acute coronary syndrome to be sent home on dual antiplatelet therapy. Of course, that uh, consists of uh, aspirin as well as a uh, second agent which currently we have multiple agents, and it's very important. As you know, there remains very high residual risk in these ACS patients going home, even though we tend to do a great job with them in the hospital. They look great when they go home. We do have to always keep in mind that there's a very high residual risk for recurrent MI and death after they go home, and dual antiplatelet therapy and secondary prevention plays a very, very uh, strong role in preventing another event. Yeah, I think that that's a that's a great sort of snapshot. Uh, let's let's drill down on that a little bit. Do you think that there are populations that benefit more or less? And and similarly, do you think that there are populations where we uh, sort of veer away from antiplatelet therapy, whereas they would uh, they would benefit from it and uh, perhaps don't uh, have the full benefit of it uh, in terms of a national prescribing practice? Well, I think, as with anything else, uh, the highest-risk patients derive the highest benefit. Uh, Unfortunately, what happens is sometimes those highest-risk patients also kind of look the scariest to us, and a lot of practitioners kind of veer away from using more aggressive therapy. And sometimes this is reasonable. Uh, Talking about specific patient populations, I mean, there's a lot of different specific patient populations you could talk about. One of the things that I always find most interesting these days is these patients going home with ACS with atrial fibrillation who need an anticoagulant. And I think this is really one of the uh, conundrums these days uh, of, of what combination of agents to send these patients home on. But I think in general, in terms of ACS, we, we really have to kind of look at the risk of the patient and uh, be aggressive according to their risk uh, uh, for recurrent events. So I think that's a, that's a great segue into another important question. I'm, I'm going to push you on that a little bit. Uh, you know, where, where's your head in terms of uh, uh, triple uh, therapy and uh, uh, the patients with acute coronary syndromes plus atrial fibrillation or some other compelling reason for systemic anticoagulation? What do you usually do, Todd? Right. Well, I mean, I think the kind of classic approach was aspirin, clopidogrel, and Coumadin. And I think that these days we have many other options of agents, but I think some of the contemporary literature and and some of the opinions that I've heard, my practice has kind of migrated towards using one antiplatelet agent and one anticoagulant, especially for older folks, which these patients tend to be. I think you really have to balance the risks of uh, bleeding in this case, and I think the risks of bleeding on triple therapy, uh, especially in older folks, is so macroscopic. It's just, you're going to see it. If you send a patient home, an older patient, on three drugs, you you really have to expect to see bleeding. And and as you know, a patient bleeds, their outcome is worse. Uh, So we have this discussion very frequently, and some of my interventional colleagues are very hesitant to send a patient home, especially after an ACS with a newly laid stent on one antiplatelet. So it's an ongoing negotiation. But to be honest with you, I think 
as we stand here today, again, there's many, many gaps in the data. But my best judgment tells me, especially in an older person, let's say for argument's sake, over 75, uh, to go home on one antiplatelet, either clopidogrel, uh, ticagrelor, or uh, prasugrel, and an anticoagulant. There you have many choices, too, and the combinations are, are not well studied. So uh, Coumadin is obviously the old standby, or some of the new antithrombotic agents are also a possibility. Yeah, I think that's a great summary of uh, some of the, the complexities that we deal with on a day-to-day basis. And obviously, there's so many different permutations of uh, patient presentation, indication for anticoagulation, and antiplatelet therapy. Uh, duration, which we'll get into here in just a few minutes, and uh, and bleeding risk. And so I think we really do have to sort of customize therapy. In broad brushstrokes, though, how successful do you think secondary prevention uh, strategies have been, specifically talking about pharmacotherapies, obviously lifestyle uh, modifications, smoking cessation, diet, exercise, weight loss. But uh, in terms of pharmacologic uh, preventive uh, strategies, how successful uh, do you think uh, they've been in the ACS population? And do you think that there's any uh, uh, differences or disparities that uh, track along uh, gender or uh, population lines? Well, I think certainly the evidence-based therapies we, we prescribe are effective. Uh, I guess to say they're successful kind of depends on, on, on what success is. I mean, I, I think, as we mentioned, the res- there's a significant residual risk no matter what we do. So probably between 10 and 20, 25 percent of the patients we send home with an ACS, we are going to see back within a year with a major event. So if that's your one patient, that's certainly not a success in my eyes or I guess in that patient's eyes. But on a population basis, the therapies we provide do provide benefit, but I wouldn't quite you know, say it's a victory at this point. And, and so it's not quite a full success. In terms of different populations, you know, I, I think one of the things we do kind of uh, still deal with is that in, in terms of gender disparities that people tend to look at women as lower risk and sometimes provide less aggressive therapy for women, and, and I certainly don't agree with that. And special populations, I mean, for instance, I, as you mentioned, I'm in Flushing, New York, which is you know, probably one of the most diverse points on the map of the United States, and we, one of the, in terms of special populations, the issues we deal with is, is just a tremendous cultural disparities and cultural differences, explaining patients the importance of taking their medications, understanding their ability to comply with the complex directions we give them, and understanding their ability to obtain, afford their medications, and, and, and not to mention communicating with their primary care doctors uh, and having them understand the importance of maintaining the, uh, the, the ongoing secondary preventive uh, strategies. So, you know, I think there's an interesting disparity uh, between the, um, the clinical trial uh, data as well uh, versus the registry data. I think we all recognize as clinical trialists and practitioners that the, the patients that we enroll in clinical trials are inarguably different than the ones that we see on a day-to-day basis in the emergency department in the coronary care unit. You know, the disparity is that the event curves, uh, especially in the antiplatelet data, seem to diverge a bit slowly uh, in the randomized clinical trial data. But uh, when you look at the registry data, patients that don't go home on antiplatelet therapy, they they sort of fall off a cliff, if you will. They have, uh, you know, sort of a preponderance of uh, events very uh, early on, and then the curves continue to diverge. And I think that that sort of hints at uh, some of the risks attendant to uh, sending patients home post-acute coronary syndromes without the, the appropriate uh, evidence-based packet of therapies. So following up on the last question, h- how long should the duration of secondary prevention efforts be uh, in these patients, and what types of uh, pharmacotherapies are you continuing for, uh, you know, for the long duration of time? Well, so in, in terms of the uh, duration, the 
Duelance, I played the recommendation from the ACC guidelines is for t- continuation for 12 months, obviously, unless the uh, risks begin to outweigh the benefits. And that does happen very frequently. So if, if intercurrently the patient does develop atrial fibrillation or some other need for anticoagulation or some other bleeding issue, certainly that has to be weighed into uh, uh, your decision how long you want to continue the antiplatelet uh, therapy. But the recommendations are dual antiplatelet therapy for at least 12 months and aspirin for a uh, lifetime. In addition, that to me, the most important thing and most overlooked thing in terms of secondary prevention is lifestyle, which is lifestyle changes, which we obviously need to be uh, you know, ongoing and never-ending. Um, but that being said, as you mentioned, the, these patients are not always as reliable as what was studied in the trial. And I can't tell you how many times in my neck of the woods I've sent somebody home, you know, following an ACS and with a list of medications and they've come back taking half or less than half of them. Why? Pharmacy didn't have them. Insurance didn't cover it. They didn't think it was important. Their primary care doctor told them it wasn't necessary. So I think to say continue for a year is optimal, but not always possible, especially if you're dealing with some not-so-ideal patients as exist in the real world. If you're just joining us, you're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Sandeep Nathan, and I'm uh, speaking with Dr. Todd Kerwin uh, from New York Hospital, Queens. Uh, We're talking about the contemporary management of acute coronary syndromes. Todd, can you talk a little bit about uh, the the functional differences between the currently available antiplatelet agents uh, that are currently used in secondary prevention? Uh, Are they equally safe, equally efficacious? Have uh, they met the burden of proof that uh, that, uh, they work in a broad swath of ACS patients? Well, that's, uh, you know, that's a question that I'm sure everybody has a different opinion to. Um, you know, with the new uh, P2Y12 inhibitors, obviously, these are more potent antiplatelet agents and do appear to be more efficacious uh, when compared to clopidogrel, uh, but they do come at the cost of uh, increased complications, particularly uh, in the realm of bleeding. Uh, so to say they're equally safe, I don't think that would necessarily be fully accurate. Are they efficacious? Yes, they're efficacious. Some cases more efficacious. I think the key is to choose the right agent for the right patient. Yeah, and I, I think that uh, adding to the complexity of this equation is the fact that in different populations and in different countries, you see uh, sort of uh, differing signals in terms of uh, safety and efficacy. I think in in broad strokes, we can say that uh, the more potent agents perhaps are associated with an uptick in uh, bleeding risk, or we need to choose our patients uh, Uh, more thoughtfully based on uh, bleeding risk. But uh, again, uh, if the indications are right, uh, there is uh, perhaps an added margin of safety and uh, efficacy uh, that's affordable with uh, careful titration of these medications. So antiplatelet medications for secondary prevention and acute coronary syndromes are reported to be consistently underused or underdosed. Uh, What do you think about that statement, and, and, and how do you think those barriers can be overcome? How can we make this better? Well, I think antiplatelet and all secondary preventive measures are probably underused. You know, when we look at the registries or I'm sure when you look at it in your own institution, you know, you, you, sometimes you do pretty well. And the next thing you know, these things you track for get with the guidelines or for uh, value-based purchasing, sometimes they just fall off the cliff. And one month you're 90-something percent compliant with, with, with something you track. And the next month you look at it and you're 70-something. And who, who knows why? I mean, there's practitioner related factors, there's patient-related factors, uh, but certainly we need to do a better job with a lot of the things we do, antiplatelet, other pharmacologic strategies, and, and things like uh, cardiac rehab. I mean, cardiac rehab remains one of the most efficacious, safe, and underutilized uh, preventive strategies. I think uh, last time we talked about cardiac rehab, something on the order of there's a 10% absolute risk reduction 
for patients who undergo cardiac rehab. We spend so, so much time talking about some of these newer agents and eking out a 1% to 2% absolute risk reduction, but just doing something like cardiac rehab, which is undeniably safe and cheap, costs about 50 bucks a session, uh, is so efficacious, and we spend very, very little time making sure our patients uh, comply with that. But we need to do a better job. We need to overcome some of the practitioner-related issues, which is, again, underestimating risk, sometimes overestimating risk of complications, and, of course, all the patient-related issues. We said we have to educate our patients. We have to make sure the primary care doctors understand that even though when you're seeing this patient uh, three or four weeks following an MI, there is still significant residual risk. Those are all great points. Uh, Dr. Todd Kerwin, thank you so much. Thanks, Sandeep. You have been listening to ReachMD. If you missed any part of this discussion, you can download the podcast at ReachMD.com. And for more information about Prova Education events, please visit ProvaEducation.com. Thank you for listening.